Hi, I'm Jordan Rain, your host for the People's Assembly Against Austerity podcast, episode four. In this episode, the psychology of austerity, the mental health consequences of living in a culture of austerity, and the psychology behind the atmosphere of cuts. Up second, the housing crisis. What are you going to do about it? We look at what the main political parties are proposing to counter the crisis in housing. After that, upcoming actions, the part where you get to take part. Featuring the June 20 It's Gonna Be Massive demo where we ask the new government to end austerity now. Last up is new music for our Patreon supporters. London band The Men That Will Not Be Blamed For Nothing. Putting the punk into steampunk with Doing It For The Wigs. Part one of this episode is the psychology of austerity, which is an issue that you may think only applies to people who end up having to deal with mental health services. But as Dr Walker is about to point out, it is a far broader issue affecting many of us, and in the current culture of austerity, the stresses and pressures it places on us makes us even more likely to need those services, though at the same time, those services are being radically depleted. Similar to the situation with housing, there is a very clear need to be funding mental health services. Despite that, the current government still looks to stigmatise mental health issues, as well as making those of us that need to access the services of mental health care look like the ones to blame for the situations we find ourselves in. This is Dr Carl Walker, a psychologist working in community mental health. He is also the National Health Action Party candidate for the general election in East Worthing and Shoreham. Hello, Dr Walker. Obviously, austerity has meant more people are suffering at the same time as mental health funding is being slashed. What are the knock-on effects for mental health infrastructure itself and the people who find themselves in desperate situations as a result, which the mental health services are by now unable to cope with? It's a very good question. And I work in mental health. I'm part of the Psychologist Against Austerity campaign. And, and what you see there firsthand is exactly the whole range of impacts. In the last four or five years, you have seen particular brutalities enacted where social care has been slashed, the state has been shrunk, and where people who are vulnerable and who need support at certain points in their lives no longer have that option. Even in the last four years, and during this kind of radical period of austerity, we've seen a 10% cut in mental health beds when mental health services were already under a huge amount of strain in this country. What you've seen is down in Sussex, you've got people, young people, 15, 16 years old, who are very, very disturbed, some of whom are suicidal, being held in police cells or being taken away from their family, away from the the, the people that they are support to get a, a bed down in Devon or Cornwall. 250 miles away. This is routine because we don't have the beds to be able to support and help people when they're at the most vulnerable. Now, you don't have to be a mental health expert to know that if you take a vulnerable 15-year-old who's suicidal 250 miles away from their family when they're at their lowest, uh, it's going to be problematic. That is a politically and economically mediated situation. It doesn't have to happen. And ultimately, when you take away those forms of support and you add into the mix the various different problems and pressures that people feel under when they they live in an austerity regime, is you have a recipe for more and more people with experiences of mental distress, socially mediated experiences of mental distress, but nowhere to fall back on. No state there, no social care system there to actually support them in a way is to help them through. And, And apart from it being a fundamentally immoral practice and problematically socially impractical because actually what you do with these kinds of austerity regimes is you just switch costs. You you move costs 
from whatever particular welfare bill you're trying to save it into and you move it into the mental health uh, or you move it into the A&E or you move it into costs for, for mental health care. These things that are supposed to be savings under the banner of austerity. They, they just don't work out that way. Now, it is one of those topics that's relatively taboo, but there have been stories, particularly from areas super hard hit by austerity, such as Greece, where suicide rates have been linked to austerity measures and are said to be on the increase. Have you seen the same thing happening in England? Well, yes, but the problem is it's very difficult to get data to support it. I've worked myself on a number of suicide awareness campaigns down in the south of England, and what's notoriously difficult is to trace suicide attempts and completed suicides and the relationship to various different social forces. But there is absolutely no doubt that when you talk to mental health practitioners, people who work with the most vulnerable people in society, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind personally, as someone who has an awful lot of experience of working with vulnerable people, that these particular changes, these particular uh, austerity changes, are having such an impact on some people in society that it is driving them towards suicide, or at least, if not to suicidal completion, certainly to suicidal ideation. That is where they are ruminating and considering taking their own life because they're so desperate. Uh, Yes. Aside from quite clearly not actually saving any money, rather just shuffling debt elsewhere, it seems like the only consequence would be that a lot more people that need and are seeking help will fall through the cracks. What are the consequences of that kind of a system? The consequences of of falling through the cracks are are catastrophic. There are people who, when they're in these difficult situations, depend on certain forms of support, which they're very much entitled to. I mean, we've seen the results of the ATOS assessment seen the employment support allowance assessments where you have something like 40% of the initial assessments of people fit for work being overturned. The system was farcical, but it put so much pressure on various people and on their families. When you take away that safety net, when you put people under those kinds of pressures, what you see is a huge manifestation of distress. And it takes its form in a whole range of different mental health problems, but it also takes its form in people seeking to take their own lives. I've worked with in the employed family centre people who have been in that position, who've either been forced to attempt to take their lives or certainly come very close to it because they felt there was literally no other way out. The sources of support were no longer there. There seems to be quite an alarming trend particularly from government spokespeople on mental health issues, to blame the victim, to kick the victim. Is that not just an extension of the cult of individual where each of us is demanded to be a completely isolated and self-sufficient entity who is ultimately responsible for absolutely anything negative that happens to them without taking outside forces and situations into account at all? What you see is that increasingly... People are not just individualized, but they're responsibilized. The idea is, in the modern age, in order to be an effective member of society who contributes to society, you have to be autonomous, you have to be self-regulating, and you have to be ultimately completely responsible for your own outcomes. Well, of course, that doesn't work in practice. That's not how human beings are. It's not how we live. It's not how we work with other people around us. And when we're distressed and disadvantaged and when we need a bit of help, unfortunately, that model just falls to pieces. So absolutely, I think it's a dreadful, dreadful illness of a lot of Western societies over the last 20, 30 years. It's it's been this growing impulse to try to individualize, to make people more and more responsible 
for actually for many things which are utterly beyond their control and which are very often politically mediated and, and, and economically mediated. And of course, you have to remember this, this notion you have, this idea of kind of us and them, which is still so prevalent that everyone kind of trots out the, the statistics of one and four and one and six. Actually, I mean, mental health is something that, that happens to all families. It happens to many people, and I'm very, very skeptical of much of the research, which, which is particularly you know, neurobiologically mediated. You know, mental distress is a response to very, very difficult and overwhelming life experiences, and it can happen to anybody at any time. It's happened to people in my family. It's happened to me. And yes, there's a lot of stigma that's associated with it. But the key thing is it is something that's very closely related to, to what's happening in society, and it's something that can happen to any single person. It is interesting that you bring up the idea of response as well, because for me it seems completely logical that if someone is heavily in debt, their job has been cut, they can no longer afford the housing they're in, they face the stress of moving, things like this that are happening because of austerity measures. Is it not the case that a lot of people who are experiencing things like depression, things like feelings of helplessness and feelings of being completely alone, are actually making quite a logical and sound assessment of the situation? I mean, by contrast, if they skipped around and sang about how happy they were, I'd be more inclined to think think that they were the person with the mental health issue. Oh, yes, absolutely, and that's it. I mean, they do, in the vast majority of cases uh, of people who do experience mental health problems or mental distress for a given period, there are very, very good reasons for why that is. And, and whilst various forms of medication and psychotherapies can be useful for people, they can be beneficial, ultimately, the current predominance of cognitive behavioural therapy in this country, and what you do is you take people who are struggling as a result of very clear economic, socially, politically mediated issues, whether it's housing, whether it's debt, whether it's stagnating wages, unable to pay bills, all sorts of things, and you put them back into very, very toxic, difficult circumstances, and ultimately they're going to experience something similar again. So it's, it's unfortunately the way we kind of address and try to treat mental health also is potentially quite problematic in our country. I should reiterate, these psychological therapies can be very useful for some people, but they are not the be-all and end-all. If we want to understand why people are becoming mental, mentally distressed, why is they become they develop mental health problems, we have to understand the life situations they've been put in. I am familiar with the concept behind cognitive therapy as well, which is basically changing your reaction to certain situations. But in the case of people who have very real reasons for feeling like they do, it's a lot like asking them to go back, put their hands straight back in the fire and react differently to the fact that they're being burnt, which I really don't think shows that much understanding of what's going on. It's kicking the victim again. But I actually did want to ask you another question about individualisation because individualisation itself seems to be what's behind the ideology of cuts. It also seems to be the thing that requires people to blame themselves for their situation and lack of autonomy. So it does seem quite dangerously self-perpetuating. Is there anything to be said for reacting against this very ideology itself in terms of mental health? I mean, it is quite genuinely impossible to change the world and sometimes even your own situation on your own. So in terms of regaining autonomy and regaining the idea that you have some impact over your own life and some involvement in the lives of others, is challenging this idea that we're all these very atomized, individuated things by means of going out there and getting involved in, in other projects that may actually have the power to change things, an important part of our mental well-being? 
I think you know, hopelessness and helplessness are key elements of it because one of the worst things about when you experience things like depression or any kinds of mental health, health problems is the isolation. You know, that, that, yes. that, that isolate, the numbing isolation that comes with it. And actually the opportunity to just be in a space with other people, whether they're experiencing the same sort of difficulties or not, has a massive, massive impact um, in a whole range of ways. I mean, I've been doing some research recently on exactly that. And it's the ways in which people coming together in what I call informal therapeutic spaces, that is, you know, community organizations, support groups, those kinds of places, actually the impact that those things can have on their mental health is absolutely huge. But very often the mechanisms that they work through are very straightforward human mechanisms of connectedness, so solidarity, of feeling of being, uh, of being important, of being respected. Yes. Yes. It's not rocket science, the want of a better word. And it's happening in organizations all over the country where the you know, people who are not trained mental health practitioners are helping to do this, the, the facilitate these groups and doing great work. I felt quite similar in the sense that I've helped to run a number of these organizations, but had never been involved in conversations. And that's why I got involved in the National Health Action Party, which is an anti-austerity party, which campaigns against privatization of the NHS. And the reason I got involved is because I thought there is a way to get out and have conversations, to be part of this public debate, because very often we're hearing one side of, of austerity. We're hearing one side of the people who, for instance, use benefits. You know, this whole notion of strivers and skivers and all these damaging discourses. Demonising processes, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, which are, which are demonising. Actually, there are organisations, there are parties that are out there and that you can get involved with. And you don't have to be, if you're not political, don't be involved with a political party. But there are campaigning organisations, there are national organisations like the People's Assembly, which are doing fantastic work, which are organising meetings, which are working to try to address some of these things. So I think that some of these questions, the really big questions, are going to require big answers and, and understand that it's not something that everybody wants to get involved in. But if people want to try to get involved in, and, and to make some sort of change or to stand up against austerity, there is a raft of organisations, national and local, who are trying to fight austerity and various different forms it takes. People can do things, they can get involved. Thank you very much, Dr Walker, for your time. Now, if you guys want to find out more about the Psychologist Against Austerity group, head to psychagainstausterity.wordpress.com. That's P-S-Y-C-H against austerity. WordPress.com. This country is going to the dogs. Part two of this fortnight's episode is about the housing crisis. The housing crisis in the UK is a headline issue, with tax exiles buying up buildings used to house people on year-long housing waiting lists, and the everyday citizen facing some of the highest rent and housing prices in Europe. It's an issue affecting so many of us and to such a huge extent that political parties have had to answer the question of what they intend to do to solve the problem. We're going to take a quick look at the situation as it stands and then at what each of the main parties plans to do about it and see if their offers are credible solutions. Officially, overcrowded houses numbered 643,000 by 2012, according to the DCLG English Housing Survey, and they've risen further since. According to the same survey, children living in overcrowded conditions numbered over a million, constituting 14% of all children in rented accommodation, and households that were homeless numbered over 52,000 almost 34,000 of those families with children. How we got there is a simple equation. The rate at which new houses are being built has been slowing since the 1970s, and under the coalition government it hit its lowest rate since the night. It hit its lowest rate since the 1920s, according to Office of National Statistics data published by the Daily Mirror. 
The UK also has an increasing rate of population growth, so the fact that only 20 new homes are being built for every 100,000 citizens means there simply aren't enough houses to go around. That isn't all, though. House prices and rents have risen tenfold since the 1980s, driven by bank lending that encourages those who can afford it to sell properties back and forth to one another instead of actually building. If food prices had increased at the same rate, a pint of milk would now be £10.55. A chicken would cost £51.18. What that means is that private rental prices have become so unaffordable for so many families that 1.8 million households are on the waiting list for state housing. For those that aren't yet quite that hard hit, rent still takes up one of the largest proportions of income in Europe. What to do isn't rocket science. From 1997 to 2010, the Labour government commissioned a review of housing supply. Economist Kate Barker concluded quite obviously that more houses still need to be built. Among other things, she highlighted the need for land to be made available for new housing, for planning procedures to be sped up and for councils to be incentivised to grant planning permission. The reason being, many areas of land still can't be built on. This is thanks to an act that goes all the way back to 1947, when the Attlee government introduced the Town and Country Planning Act, which made it illegal to build anything without planning permission. Their plan, masterminded by Anur and Bevan, was that the government would provide most new housing, and new private homes would be very strongly restricted. Then Thatcher came in, and added to the problem by stopping councils from building new houses themselves. There begins the problem with state housing, or better said, the lack thereof. Thatcher made it easier for people to get mortgages without making it easier for private developers to build new houses on green fields and without giving councils enough autonomy to build state housing. Not providing enough housing, not providing enough housing that's affordable and not providing enough state housing leads to situations like the recent Sweetsway evictions. The evicted families were being housed on the estate whilst on the Barnet Council housing waiting list. One family was moved to accommodation so small that they had to move their fridge into the lounge as there was no room for it. The Guardian reports that one man was admitted to hospital because of the stress and that relocated children are having to get up at 5am and spend three hours a day commuting to school because their still temporary accommodation is so far away. Jeanette Evans, a housing campaigner who opposes demolition, said... We have to get out of this mindset that homes are investments. It enrages me that owners treat us like pieces of furniture. Comedian Russell Brand has also publicly called for an end to the scheme, so far to no avail. To those who claim that development might help in the long term because the estate itself is being sold off to build 288 new homes, only 59 of those homes are classified as affordable. And let's not forget, it only worsens conditions for those in need of state housing meaning that the redevelopment does little to ease the housing crisis and only serves the interest of investors. Interestingly, it was the Conservative-run Barnet Council who approved the sale, behind which was a man called Guy Hans. According to The Guardian, Hans is a tax exile who runs a multi-billion pound investment house. The housing crisis itself is an undeniable fact, with heavy human suffering as its consequence, and opportunistic investors as its exacerbators. The problem is now so public and frequent that political parties have had to come out with statements on what to do about it. Let's look at what they have to offer, starting with the Conservatives. The Tories will hold on to bedroom tax. To counter the unpopularity of this, they're offering 20% off newly built homes for first-time buyers. As usual, this is something that looks nice on the surface, but delving underneath shows that yet again Cameron is putting the con in Conservative. In return for offering the discount, the developers behind the new homes no longer have to pay for the new infrastructure to support this new housing, including schools, hospitals, roads and flood defences. 
This infrastructure still needs to be paid for, of course. It's just that the developers are no longer the ones paying for it. The cost will fall entirely on local councils and taxpayers. Developers will also be exempt from agreements that oblige them to provide new affordable homes, school places or other contributions to the local area. Developers are also exempt from the requirement to make developments zero carbon. This will allow developers to build less energy efficient and poorer quality homes, meaning higher costs for heating and maintenance. Clearly this is just another example of shifting costs, and additionally goes absolutely nowhere towards building the state houses so desperately needed. Adam Benko of politics.co.uk is calling it a handout to developers. He says, Indeed, the closer you look at the policy, the clearer it becomes that this is a straight-up transfer of wealth from the public sector to the private, and from local people to landowners, rather than a genuine attempt to provide new homes. To Labour. Labour's Shadow Housing Minister MP, Emma Reynolds, replied to the Conservatives' offer of 200,000 not necessarily affordable new homes, with Labour has a better plan to get at least 200,000 homes built by the year 2020, including badly needed affordable homes. She added, David Cameron's government has consistently and repeatedly watered down affordable housing requirements, depriving local communities of badly needed affordable homes and have failed to assess the impact of their policy. But one thing is clear, it will lead to fewer affordable homes. Ministers should urgently scrap this policy and think again, she says. Apart from the 200,000 new homes, with some being affordable, Labour are offering support for renters. With home ownership plummeting among young people, rising numbers of people are reliant on landlords. Labour wants to increase a series of reforms for renters, including banning estate agents from charging letting fees, legislation to make three-year tenancies the norm, and putting an upper ceiling on rent increases. They want to scrap the bedroom tax too, and oblige banks giving out loans for first-time homes to put it into new housing rather than existing housing. Sadly, Labour's social housing record is not a good one. During Labour's last term in government, we saw less state housing being built than under either Thatcher or Cameron the Spectator reports. Like the Conservatives, they are also not actually against TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, and is instead only hoping to mitigate some of its clauses. Under the investor-state dispute settlement part of TTIP, it would be possible for big firms to sue governments who reduce their earnings, for example by putting upper ceilings on rent increases, meaning Labour's own policies on affordable housing may well be undermined by investor firms. Despite the fact that Labour may well be the lesser of two evils, neither party is sufficiently addressing the issue of state housing. In other words, neither party has a full coverage plan to solve the housing crisis. As is often the case, it is still up to us as voters to make our voices heard and ask for proper solutions. If housing is the issue that gets your vote, you should ask your local MP about how they plan to address the issues of affordable housing and state housing. You can also make your voice heard by supporting the various organisations lobbying for proper housing, some London examples being the Fred Wig campaign in Walthamstow and the Sweets Way campaign in Barnet. You can also make your voice heard by supporting the various organisations lobbying for proper housing or by supporting the People's Assembly demonstrations on housing. And now to upcoming actions, the part where you get to be out on the street with us and have your voice heard. We have a massive demo coming up on June the 20th. 
It's actually more than just a demo, it is a festival and it's where we ask whoever the new government turns out to be to end austerity now. Every major party remains committed to austerity, so the People's Assembly Against Austerity is calling for a national demonstration and festival straight after the election to send a clear message to the new government that we demand an alternative to austerity and to policies that only benefit those at the top. That's June 20th, that is in London, at 12 noon to 3pm, outside the Bank of England on, on Queen's Victoria Street. Nearest tube station is Bank, and the postcode is EC2R8AH. There will be transport arranged from all across the country if you are in the UK, so check out the People's Assembly website for the transport arrangements. That is www.thepeoplesassembly.org.uk. This week, on Thursday the 16th of April at 6.30pm, we have the London-wide Activist and Volunteers Meeting. Now that is in Moreland Street, London, EC1V8BB, 33-37 Moreland Street. The nearest tube station there is Angel and Old Street. Again, check the website for details. And last, but one of the most dangerous trade agreements in history... And on the table today, the anti-TTIP International Day of Protest. Now, across England, there will be protests against TTIP on April the 18th. Do check the War on Want site for that one. That's www.waronwant.org. The People's Assembly Against Austerity will, of course, also be present. Now, leaving you with a bit of a song. This is by The Men That Will Not Be Blamed For Nothing, and it's called Doing It For The Whigs. It is based around the 1832 general election, in which the progressive Whig party took on the incumbent Tories. If you are supporting the podcast via Patreon at patreon.com slash P-A-A-A, then you get to download this track for free. For everyone else, head to blamedfornothing.bandcamp.com. There's no www in that one. It starts H-T-T-P-S colon slash slash blamedfornothing.bandcamp.com These guys play in London regularly and I really recommend you see them they're wonderful That's right Here we go We're doing it for the Whigs No future In Tory politics Politics. Here we go. We're doing it for the Wicks.